The first reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 48, verses 16b to 18 and verse 22. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And the second reading is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that they're written for our encouragement and hope. And we pray that today you would soften our hearts and open our ears that we might hear your voice and we might draw close to you. Holy Spirit, come and lead us and help me as I speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A story is told of a British ambassador serving in America, and he was sitting at his desk in Washington, D.C., early one December, taking a phone call from a beguilingly charming and friendly journalist. They're having a very congenial chat, and in the course of a conversation, the journalist asked, so what would you like for Christmas? Well, he said, it's so cold in Washington these days, I'd like some new socks, really, and a scarf and and an overcoat, perhaps. So he was horrified a few weeks later when the Christmas edition of a local newspaper came out with a list of distinguished people and their Christmas desires. The head of NATO wanted world peace. Bill Gates wanted eradication of malaria. And Britain's ambassador in Washington wanted new socks and a new scarf. Well, world peace, world peace, obviously highly desirable, obviously highly elusive. The peace that's being described here is, I'm sure we know, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The Hebrew word peace, shalom, embraces a very large concept of what peace is. It's not just the absence of strife. I guess that the kind of phrase we might use is well-being. But just think for a moment about this peace and how desirable it is. World peace, what's not to like? Surely we'd all want that. But instead, all around us, you don't need me to remind you, there's conflicts at every level. I googled how many wars are taking place at the moment. And if you want a horrible surprise, you can google that yourself. There are four wars at the moment going on where over 10,000 combat-related deaths happened last year. 
But conflict gets much closer to home, isn't it? Local conflicts, disputes within families, disputes at work between colleagues, disputes within churches, and inner conflicts, dis-ease within individuals. And yet, and yet, peace and peacemaking is so high up on God's agenda that it makes it into the top eight qualities of those he will bless. The Beatitudes. The desire for peace flows from God's heart. In Isaiah chapter 9, very familiar verses because we read them every Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One of his names, Prince of Peace. Good Bible quiz question, you know, Bible trivia. Who is it in the scriptures that first names God? The Lord is peace. And it's a very um, unfair question because it's tucked away in Judges chapter 6. It's Gideon. And Paul will write, Now the God of peace be with you. And when we dig into this beatitude, as I've been doing, just thinking about it, praying over it, reading about it this past week, actually there's quite a lot to be seen in the very words themselves, just a definition of what Jesus is saying. The word peacemaker is not one that I hear very much in conversation. Much more familiar is troublemaker. You know, when someone's identified as a troublemaker, we know exactly what that means. And, and that reminds us that an individual can have influence to stir up trouble, does it not? And the fact that Jesus can say, blessed are the peacemakers, remind us that an individual can have influence to stir up peace, does it not? So, so we can make a difference. And there's, what if the second half of the saying for they shall be called children of God. I think it's just instructive to know this isn't saying you qualify for being a child of God when you are a peacemaker. It's an idiom that means, we would say, a chip off the old block. So what Jesus is saying is, when you promote peace, you're behaving in a way that the Father does. You're, you're, you have a family likeness when you and I do what we can to promote peace peace. So, what is peacemaking? Oftentimes, it's not what we think it is. I think what most commonly passes for peacemaking is, in reality, nothing more than conflict avoidance. That's what we think of. It's the cheap way out for peacemaking. And conflict avoidance isn't peacemaking at all. It's dodging the problem and hoping it will go away. And most of us are not stupid, and we want to avoid pain ourselves, and therefore we want to avoid confrontation and conflict. And so we walk away now. And that's not silly. It's quite rational in many ways, because there are so many ways in which when you try to resolve a conflict, things can go wrong. And oftentimes we experience this ourselves, and if anyone ever gets involved in the peacemaking process, 
gets involved in conflict resolution, you stand a very high chance of being hurt in the process. So not surprising that most of us pass by on the other side. But there's a problem with that approach. No conflict left alone simply goes away and resolves itself. That's the problem. It might go underground and fester, but it won't heal itself. And that's true within countries, it's true within families, it's true within organisations and colleagues at work, and it's true within church families too, for that matter. Let's just think of an example <clears throat> that could be in any setting at all. So it could be between countries, it could be within a family, it could be within a work team, it could be within a church family. Let's suppose that one party behaves as a belligerent, bullying and aggressive in nature. And they habitually use this kind of behavior and dominance and coercion and deliberate abrasiveness and rudeness and threat. Why do they do this? Well, to get their own way, of course. And why do they continue to do this? Because other countries and other colleagues and other members of the church walk away to avoid the conflict they know that's coming if they try and step in the way. And in so doing, inadvertently, in stepping away, they are rewarding unacceptable behaviour. And they're reinforcing in the offender's mind that this kind of behaviour works. When I behave like this, I get what I want. But think of the alternative. To step in the way is to invite being mangled. When we read the Gospels, it's so instructive to see that Jesus does step in the way and he does get mangled. Look where he ends up. Crucified for his pains or maybe for our pains. Isaiah 53 verse 5 spots it and speaks it as it is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace brought us peace, was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. So all I'm saying is peacemaking is challenging and costly. It might sound so desirable we all put our hands up for it, but just let's take it in. It's peacemaking is challenging and costly. But the price of not engaging in peacemaking is also challenging and costly. So, appeasement and collusion or avoidance doesn't work, and it's not the same as peacemaking. But then I want to draw a second conclusion from where this beatitude is in the list of beatitudes. It's seventh. It's not the first. And we've seen, haven't we, there is a progression, one to the other to the other to the other, of the beatitudes. And the peace process starts heart to heart at step one. Now, when I was preaching on the fourth beatitude, the one about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I said that many people stand on that step for a short while, look around and see how costly it is and decide they'll actually go back to the previous step. The opposite happens with step seven, peacemaking. It sounds so attractive, many people try and start there. 
They clamber, as it were, onto rung seven and think, let's work it out from here. And I'd say to you, I can see why people do that, but it's not the place to start. This is an extraordinarily demanding beatitude. And we should be taught something by the fact that it is the seventh, it's very near the summit. And we should be taught something by realizing that the next beatitude is blessed to those who are persecuted for my name's sake. So even aspiring to be a peacemaker is cruising for a bruising that will bring peace in the long term. Look at what it costs Jesus. Well, if you do a study of the word peace in the scriptures, well, I can save you the trouble because I've done it for you. And I found out that there are two words that are linked with the word peace time and time and time again. And we won't get far in the world of peacemaking unless we embrace both these words. And I think the first one is, is somewhat surprising. The missing link, or the link we have to embrace, is there is a very close link between peace and righteousness. In fact, peace is seen in the scriptures as a product that flows from righteousness. It's an outworking of God's wisdom. Quote, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. That's what the scripture says. And the opposite is also scriptural too. There is no peace for the wicked. Let me read you quite a few of the verses that all echo the same truth. And, and I think that's significant because when in scripture God says something once, we know that's always true. When he says something twice, three times, four times in different places, it seems to me it must be because of two one of two reasons. Either the truth that's being revealed to us is so difficult to accomplish, we need to hear it many times to realize it is a priority from God. Or perhaps it's also because it's, it's just repeated because it's so important. So let me read you a, a smorgasbord of verses on peace. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. Isaiah 32, 17. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what's best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you'd paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Isaiah 48, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. See the link again, righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So God's word seems to teach us over and over again, the first step to peace and well-being is to learn how to dwell near God, to receive his forgiveness. His death brought us peace, peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. And this has particular poignancy and relevance and force for those of us who count ourselves as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Because since he died to reconcile us to him, we have no earthly right to fall out with any of his fellow believers, our brothers and sisters. 
Since we have this in common, having been forgiven by him, who do we think we are if we start dividing one from another? Well, the second missing link, the second word that's associated with this word peace comes up again and again and again in the same sentence as the word peace is the word effort. There are so many times in scripture where we're told we need to make every effort to bring peace. So let me give you a, a sample of these, Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 14. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and the common good. Or Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Or 2 Timothy 2, 22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. It's getting monotonous, isn't it? Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. 2 Peter 3, 14, so then, dear friends, since we're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So it begs the question, what effort can we put in? What effort are we putting in to restore peace, establish peace, and maintain peace? How would you go about it? And I, I realise that this talk could get incredibly long. So I'm not going to do the, the part of a talk which says how to go about it. Instead, I'm going to refer you to a much better talk than I'm capable of giving. And I, I've got it printed out here on a piece of paper for everyone who wants one. And, and all it says on here is Google Rick Warren, How to Resolve Conflict and Restore Relationship 2014. If you put that into Google, you will find yourself directed to a talk given by Pastor Rick. It is very long, but it's also very good. And it, it has seven points along the way of how to restore a relationship. And I would say, as I hope, what I'm hoping is happening during this talk is you're getting considerably motivated to try and sort out some relationships. I would say don't do anything till you've listened to the whole of Rick's talk because then you'll be much better equipped, okay? And I, I'm going to put these little bits of paper by the coffee, by the door, so that um, you can do it at home. Back to the talk I'm giving now. A couple more points, just pointers from the Sermon on the Mount. Peacemaking, resolving conflicts, takes priority over our worship, which is extraordinary. So a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. It's impossible to worship God effectively if you're harboring a grudge in your heart, isn't it? If you're out of sorts with someone else, you'll be out of worship. You have to put relationship building high up your agenda. It's just a, it's a charade to come to worship if in your heart uh, you're holding a grudge. Sort yourself out first. That's what Jesus is saying in that little story. And I have to say that within God's family, we find it much easier to fall out and to fall in, especially in times of change. No one likes change. But the problem is the gospel has a growth dynamic 
And that means change is here to stay. So Jesus' word is instructive here. Perhaps the best way, perhaps the easiest way of being a peacemaker is not to cause a conflict in the first place. Paul puts such a high priority on peace because he sees not only the damage it does, but division is Satan's work. That's why he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I, I wonder if you've ever felt sorry for those two characters that are mentioned in Philippians chapter four, because they'd fallen out with each other. They're remembered for all time for being squabblers. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, stop rowing. And, and he saw, Paul saw that it could just rip, as, rip asunder what God is trying to join together when people in God's family fall out. Instead, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that it might benefit those who listen. A lot of peacemaking would be unnecessary if we stuck to that. We have an obligation, you know this, and you and I embrace it. We have an obligation to build up the body of Christ. That's why in a couple of weeks when we have Commitment Sunday here, there's a process. We commit ourselves to Christ first, we commit ourselves to St. Michael's, and we commit our financial support to St. Michael's. The three make sense, they belong together. And then Jesus' teaching, and this is my final point, within the Sermon on the Mount, offers this as a helpful guide to us. Pray for those you find it difficult to love. That's just a, a starting point. Pray for those you find it difficult to love. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even tax collectors doing that? And I'm going to end with a stellar example of peacemaking and um, forgiveness. But there is one problem with this example. It, it's so extreme, it's so off the scale remarkable that we might think to ourselves, hmm, that's just beyond my experience and anything I could do. But I want to say forgiveness, reconciliation, peacemaking, it start, you start with those who it's easier to address. You don't, you don't end at this point with your first move. I'm going to read it because I feel it's so encouraging and so inspiring too. This is a true account of a courtroom scene that is recorded in a Truth and Reconciliation Commission from South Africa. A frail black woman stands slowly to her feet. She's something over 70 years of age. Facing her from across the room are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr. Vanderbrook, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. He'd come to the woman's house, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then burnt the young man's body on a fire while he and his fellow officers parted nearby. 
Then several years later, Mr. Vanderbrook had returned to take away her husband. And almost two years after that, he came back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening, going down to a place beside a river, where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the officer poured gasoline all over his body and set him aflame were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbrook. A member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, So what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burnt, so I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses and then she continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I'd like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. I'd like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms, embrace him, and let him know he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrook, overwhelmed by what he's just heard, faints. And as he does, those in the courtroom, friends, family, neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing, softly and assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that peace is one of your names. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the Prince of Peace, that you came to offer peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Thank you that all who come to you and ask for your peace and confess their sins will receive forgiveness and a new start in life. And we pray, Lord, that we might trust you as King of kings and Lord of lords and exchange our wobbliness for your permanent peace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.